and Ben's led us in prayer, asking that God would speak his word to us this evening. So please do keep it open in front of you. John chapter 19, page 1088 is where we are. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here with you this evening. Great pleasure to be back. Uh, great pleasure to see lots of faces I don't know as well. Uh, that means that either I've got a poor memory or uh, you've arrived in the last few years. Well, uh, great to see you here as well as to see some faces that I do know as well. And uh, what a passage we have before us in John chapter 19. And one verse in particular that I thought uh, stuck out as being a bit odd uh, when I was looking through it this week. It's the one that Ben's read out for us a couple of times already. Verse 35. Uh, do you want to have a look at it there with me? Uh, we've got it as two sentences in ours. It's really one big sentence. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. In the midst of what otherwise is a sort of narrative telling us events that happened comes this little uh, verse thrown in. And I think I could challenge any of us to come up with a single sentence which managed to use the words testimony, truth, and true more times than this one manages to uh, in the space of just a few words. Why? Why in the midst of telling us about the events as Jesus died, why stop and say, do you know what? This is true. It's testimony from someone who was there and it's true and so believe it. Why? I think this is why. It's because it's not enough to, to just believe it. If you're a Christian here tonight, I hope that you believe at these events happens indeed that you trust Jesus's death for you but John as he's writing his gospel knows that it needs to be more than that for us because instead these truths this truth needs to be the truth that you will stake your life on do you believe it that much that you'd stake your life on it that's what it is to be a Christian Perhaps to stake your life on it because you're worried about uh, being rejected by family members when you tell them that you've become a Christian. We had a lovely girl with us for a few years uh, called Helen. She's Chinese. Uh, she's headed back to China now, uh, having become a Christian during her months at Christchurch Enclave. And she went back to a non-Christian home, a city with no church that she knew about, that even we could find out about through our networks. Uh, she went back to tell her parents that she'd become a Christian. It's hard. And you will not do it unless you're sure. Because when you get home and they say to you, how was your year? Any big news? Unless you know that this is true, you won't have that conversation, will you? Or what about staking your life on it in that you know that now that you're a Christian, it's turning your back on your whole former way of life. Think of someone else who became a Christian. Their boyfriend didn't. And it led to a few months. He, he, was, he was up for finding out. Came along to our inquirer's course. He talked with lots of people. But as the months went by, his decision became firmer. No, not for him. 
and so painfully. She had to make that decision that in that case, their lives were no longer coming together, they were moving apart, and she broke it off. And you can't do that sort of thing unless you're sure. It's a truth to stake your life on. Perhaps it's approaching death. I was speaking to someone just yesterday. They're an oncologist. And they're saying they've recently just had the privilege of being the, the, the specialist for uh, a clergyman, a, a vicar, an evangelical, a lovely Christian man who from diagnosis to death spanned just over a month. And they said to see him with his hope so firm, face death so bravely, because his life had been staked on something he knew was true. Or I don't know, what do you do when doubts come your way? Perhaps you've been chatting with someone who's not a Christian. They've got some great questions. Uh, some great things. That make, oh, I don't, I don't know what I think about that. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know what the Bible means when it says that or why it should say that. Do you come back from that? Do you, are you rocked by it? Or you wake up when you, one day and you think, can it be true? Is it worth it? Am I on the right path? Have I been duped? Where will you come back to? Where is the truth that you know is true? And so everything else can be built on it. John says this is that truth. A truth the stake your life on. So what is the truth? This truth. Well, a few things to mention. Here's the first. The truth to state your life on is that Jesus took our suffering. Jesus took our suffering. See, perhaps the, the question comes, look, I know we're talking about the cross, Jesus' death. I believe that that happened. But so What? Jesus died. Yeah, okay, all but the most extreme people believe that. But why is that relevant to me? How can it help me? What connects me to him so long ago? Perhaps you're here tonight, you're not yet a Christian. You're interested in finding out more. Great that you're here, but you wouldn't have chosen to find out more about the cross. Surely there's something else, there's something more. The Apostle Paul, uh, writing in the letter uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, wrote this, Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. He was like John, he knew that this was the nub of it, but he said it's not what people want to hear. He said some people, they're like the Jews, they want miraculous signs. See that today, uh, don't you? People who, what they want is a message that's powerful. Oh, this is how you can turn your life around. Oh, tell me about that sort of thing. That sounds great. That's what I want to hear. Oh, I don't want to talk to you about that, though. I want to tell you about a man who died on a cross. What? No, I want the power stuff. I want the turn my life around stuff. Others, said the Apostle Paul, they're looking for wisdom. They come along, they want to hear great philosophy. What is life? Where do we find meaning? How do we understand the world? We say, 
great questions. Let me tell you about a man who died on a cross. They said, oh, what are you talking about? It's not what I came to hear. How does it connect to the questions that we actually have and the lives that we have to lead? Well, it does, because here Jesus takes our suffering. See verse 28? Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. This, uh, the fulfillment of all God's plans, I know you were thinking about this last week with the previous passage as well, this repeated refrain, the scripture being fulfilled, God's promises being met. But it's all boiled down into, well, actually, one word that Jesus cries out. I am thirsty. I'm thirsty. That is John's summary of what it was for Jesus to die on the cross. Now, if you're not a Christian yet here this evening, you, you, maybe you do know the Gospels very well. Many of us have been Christians for a number of years. We think we know them rather well. But I suspect that many of us would be surprised to hear that this is the only word, a single word originally, the only word in the whole of John's Gospel that speaks about Jesus' suffering on the cross. We know from Mark's gospel about the darkened sky. We know that on the cross he shouts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We love to remember these truths. John has none of that. He has one word. I thirst. What did it mean? In part, it, it, he is fulfilling scripture. Uh, Psalm 22, you looked at this morning. Uh, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Psalm 69, they gave me vinegar for my thirst. Both Psalms of the rejected king of God's people. Rejected, spurned, and suffering. And Jesus is saying, that's me. But I think there's more than that too. When we think about the way that this word thirst is used within John's own gospel, it comes at three other times. Uh, the first is in chapter 4 when Jesus met one day uh, a woman from Samaria, a woman at a well. Someone who was longing for happiness and fulfillment, if you know the story. Longing for those things and yet hadn't found them. And Jesus says to her this, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The search for happiness and fulfillment quenched by Jesus. The next time is at the feeding of the 5,000. I'm sure you've heard of that miracle before. It's a crowd who were just looking for short-term survival. Oh, Jesus, do the bread one again. And instead, Jesus says this. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. And then the final one is in chapter 7, just the very next chapter. At verse 37, uh, Jesus is promising spiritual life, and this is how he does it. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
See what thirst is for, for John as he writes? Thirst is this metaphor for unfulfillment, longing in life, and an absence of God's Spirit. A thirst that ultimately comes from our broken world and our broken relationship with God. And in each case, Jesus says, we need not be thirsty. Come to me if you're thirsty. Let him come and drink. We need not be thirsty if we come to Jesus. In him we find life and refreshment and satisfaction. But it comes at a price. The price here of Jesus' own thirst. Not, Not just the thirst of a dry mouth but the thirst of Jesus enduring the full effect of our sin. Of him being removed from happiness and fulfillment. Of him having not even short-term survival. Of him being cut off from the Spirit of God himself. Jesus took our suffering. It's why the cross connects. It's why it's the truth to stake your life on. Because Jesus has endured them so I can be free from them. And so look no further than the cross for life, eternal life, life with God. That's the first truth. Uh, Here's the second. Uh, Jesus completed our salvation. Here I'm looking at verse 30. When he'd received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. A a phrase that means uh, it's completed. The job is done. The promise is kept. The scripture is fulfilled. And for us, it is a wonderful truth if you're a Christian here today because it means that our salvation, our rescue by Jesus is secure and dependable and irreversible because it's done. It's done. And so Jesus tells us that it's done. Uh, If you've seen the film Saving Private Ryan, then I'm sure the first 20 minutes is etched into your brains. It depicts the D-Day landing on Omaha Beach in France at the end of World War II. And by the end of that invasion scene, the sea is red with blood. So disturbing. And one of the soldiers killed is called Private Sean Ryan. And then the war office in America tragically discovers that his brothers Peter and Daniel have also been killed in action elsewhere and their mother is due to receive the news of the three deaths simultaneously uh, from the same postman she collapses on her doorstep and then it's discovered that there's a fourth son James Ryan who's just been parachuted 15 miles behind enemy lines the chief of staff gives orders that a group of eight men must go and get Ryan out to save private Ryan And that becomes the the rest of the story of the film. But one by one, as the rescue mission goes on, these eight men are killed. At one point, their leader, Captain John Miller, snarls, this Ryan better be worth it. Uh, 
he'd better go home and cure some disease or invent the longer-lasting light bulb. He's not worth my men. But the mission continues, and the film ends with Ryan rescued. Uh, the American fighter planes are overhead, but Hanks on the bridge, who plays that, the captain, uh, dies. And his final words to Ryan, uh, just whispered above the gunfire, say this. Earn this. Earn this. And he's gone. And then uh, the scene flicks for you know, that thing where someone's face ages. Um, it's what those of you who knew me before are thinking has happened in the past five years. Um, it ages, and there, there he is, a much older man. And he turns to his wife there at a graveyard looking at the, the captain's tombstone. And he says, tell me I've been a good man, that I've led a good life. It's a rather pathetic ending. As though, has he earned it? How can you earn it? Eight lives gone. How good would you have to be? This crushing burden because of other sacrifice placed onto him. And if you are a Christian here today, that is not a bit like what it is for us. Because Jesus doesn't say, earn this. He says, it is finished. It is finished. I've done it. You cannot earn it. You did not deserve it, and you will never repay it. But Christ has died for you. It's finished. And you cannot improve it. Uh, a few weeks ago, we went on a, a trip to London. My kids had never been inside the M25, so they were pleased to discover that there's something there. Uh, one day, we went to the National Gallery. Um, and we went and bought a postcard. They, they choose a postcard that was their favorite, and then we had to go and find them, um, which is a good way, parents, if you're looking to spend time in a museum and uh, your kids would otherwise protest. Um, it worked. I'll tell you what we didn't take, crayons. B because the paintings are done. And much as my four-year-old Sophie would have appreciated the chance to add a buttercup or something, they cannot be completed. Don't think that the cross can be completed. It is already finished. You cannot improve it. You cannot add to it. And you will never earn it. It's done. You just rely on it. This is the truth you stake your life on. Because it can't be shaken. And build on that... And you build on something that lasts for eternity. Jesus took our suffering and he completed our salvation. Uh, well, one more thing. Jesus was our sacrifice. Uh, there are two more quotes in our passage today, aren't there? They're, they're, they're right in the last two verses. This time not quoting what Jesus said, but rather quoting from the Bible. Uh, the, the very things that he is here fulfilling. Have a look at verse 36 again. Uh, these things happened so that scripture would be fulfilled. 
And then two things. Not one of his bones will be broken. And then also, they will look on the one they have pierced. See, in uh, checking that Jesus is dead, they uh, find that he already is. They don't need to speed it up by by breaking his legs. I've read that... uh, being crucified, it's actually, you can't breathe because of the weight of your body. And so you used to have to push up on the nail between your legs in order to open up your lung cavity. And smashing the legs of the people being crucified would mean they couldn't do that and they'd, they'd die all the sooner. Not necessary for Jesus. Instead, a spear in the side just to check that he doesn't jerk. Unwittingly. They fulfill something written all the way back in Exodus chapter 12. That's speaking not not of a man, but instead of a lamb. Exodus 12 is the Passover. Do you know the story of how God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt? He sent a series of plagues against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Again and again they refused to let God's people go. But the final one was the death of every firstborn child. Horrific. And it would affect God's people too, apart from one thing, and that is that they would take a lamb into their home, let it live with them for a while, become part of the family, and then kill it, and daub its blood outside the door. And then on that night, cook it and eat it. Eat it, all of it. Everything had to go. You weren't allowed to share it. And to make sure that you couldn't share it, you weren't even allowed to to, to separate it, to break the bones off. Can I have a leg, Daddy? No, you just have a bit. It's whole because it's for our family and no one else. And here, Jesus is the lamb. Sometimes he's called the lamb, isn't he? This is why. He's the one who dies instead of us. The lamb died instead of the firstborn. Jesus dies instead of us. He's our sacrifice. And what does that sacrifice bring? Well, that second quote. They will look on the one they have pierced. This time from Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10. In context, it's about God showing his grace and mercy to his people because of the one who would suffer for them. But grace and mercy come. They come to us. Our sins paid for, the sacrifice finished, life ours. Jesus took our suffering. He completed our salvation He is our sacrifice. This is true. They saw it. They wrote it. They told it. It's true. So believe it. And don't just believe it. Stake your life on it. Let's pray together. This is a trustworthy saying that it's 
worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that truth. We thank you for the sacrifice that made it true. We thank you for our Lord who died for us and who is risen today. Please help us to trust this, to make it the truth that we depend on and that our lives are built on. In his name we pray. Amen.